Welcome to Through the Ringer. I'm your host, Tate Frazier. And joining us, as she always does on Fridays, you know her very well. Nora, what's going on? Great to see you. It's great to see you too, Tate. Not that much. Um, You want to talk some power rankings? Oh, I, I bring you on the show and we talk ringer powering because you know how this goes. But before we do that, I have to point this out. I'm in. I'm at home in North Carolina. If you can, you, if you're watching, you can obviously tell I'm not you in studio here. You had a lovely here. Instagram of all the foliage. Yeah, great foliage out here. And then my uh, my mom, the first thing she says to me, she goes, "I love Nora. Stop making fun of her background." So um, you have an advocate <laughs> on this side. Uh, my mother is uh, is team. Don't shame Nora nor her background. So uh, okay, I come home now to this. I'm, now I'm doing this this week in my living room. So you can probably see here. Let's just like let the people know there is. Oh, you can kind there's of something. See. <laughs> I have a home. <laughs> it's like furnished. There's real stuff right. in it. Uh, if we were in my office, you would still be looking at a blank white wall. But well, you ever I'm, sit in I'm, one chair for too long and you're just like, I need to go somewhere else. So I've been yeah. working like all week from from our dining table because I just was like, I can't do it anymore. I can't yeah, be we have to move. We have to move the creative spaces, but I just wanted you to know that you have an advocate in the Fraser household, and uh, my mom is she's officially shut it down. So there will be no more comments, no more jokes, no more uh, mentions of the background. We respect your background. Blank. If it's a blank space, we'll have fine with that. If it's if it's covered as it is today, we'll talk about that. But let's talk about the power rankings because it is time. You know what it is. The you know the Eagles are basically becoming perennially the number one team here on the power rankings. They stay there eight and one. We have our Ravens at number two, the Chiefs at number three, Cincinnati at number four, and number five the 49ers. Let's start with number five because uh, San Francisco is a bit of a mess, right? We got we got Steve Wilkes now. He's going to come down to the sidelines and help call the game. We can talk about yeah. that, that a little bit later, but just in general, what are, what are, what is the vibe right now around the San Francisco 49ers? Well, you know, it, it's, 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 it's not great. Morale is maybe a little <laughs> bit low, but I think that there's no right. need to panic. I think that, you know, especially with the eventual, but hopefully soon return of Trent Williams, especially I think is like the one health thing there that is being totally overlooked as just a, a real important piece of this offense, they pretty soon are looking like they're going to have him, McCaffrey, and Debo as the full complement, helping Brock Purdy. And I think once that's all the case, things should look better. Uh, if I'm worried about two things, it's that for all the talk about you know Purdy's performance and the offensive supporting cast, elevating him. I'm a little worried about how McCaffrey has looked the last, Mm. like, you know, call it month. Um, Would love to see a really explosive game out of him. Also, just the defense, right, has not been the dominant unit that they were early in the year and that I think uh, the 49ers are hoping they will be if they make a Super Bowl run. But I still think this is a really good team. I mean, they're still first in passing offense. There's still an overall really good defense, especially against the pass or six against the pass. I'm not too worried about the 49ers. I think they still belong in the top five. I think they're going to be able to get it together and rebound. The funny thing is, I don't think Purdy's played that badly during this stretch. I just think a lot of things have been going wrong at the same time. So I'm looking to see them right the ship and and maybe we won't be nitpicking them so much in 
future power ranking segments going Yeah, forward. we got to, you know, we don't like to nitpick too much with the power rankings, but we do have to talk about a team. We talked about the bad defense of the 49ers. Now let's talk about the good defense of the Kansas City Chiefs, a team known for Andy Reid's explosive offense, now has an identity on the defensive end. They're number three on the power rankings. Can we believe in the hype of Kansas City being able to, to go to a Super Bowl based on their defense if the offense is lagging behind as it has the past couple of weeks? Yeah, you know, I, I really think they they can. And I think that if we see this Chiefs team win the Super Bowl, they probably will, as crazy as it sounds, win it, if not with defense, then with balance, right? Like Patrick Mahomes is still doing amazing things for this offense. And to the extent that I have quibbles with their offensive performance this year, it's really comparing this year's Chiefs with the Chiefs of years past, as opposed to this year's Chiefs with the rest of the NFL in a year where offense is down across the board, right? They're still seventh in passing offense. This is still a good offense, but I don't think they're quite as explosive as they have been. I think they've struggled to run the ball. And so I think that the magic of Mahomes this year looks a little bit more like choosing the right moments to scramble for a first down, getting just enough so that that defense can take them all the way. And if they win the Super Bowl, I think that's the formula. The thing that's really interesting about their defense to me is how homegrown it was and is. I have to talk omissions. You know I like to do this with the power rankings. Every single time I see the top five, I say there is some people out there that are going to point out that there is a team that started one and two. They've won five straight. They lead the NFL in takeaways. The quarterback, the running back, they're playing great with each other with Trevor Lawrence and Travis Etienne. Of course, I'm talking about the Jacksonville Jaguars. Do we think that they've been snubbed from the power rankings? Do we think that a team that has won five straight should be top five right now in the NFL? You know, I can see the argument. I I don't think they'd knock the the 49ers out probably right now. Mm -hmm. And I still trust the overall talent on San Francisco to win out against Jacksonville. But Trevor Lawrence does the hard stuff. Right. Like he he is a star adult quarterback who, if it is third and seven and everybody knows you're passing, I trust that guy to get that done. Mm-hmm. I wish they were in those situations a little bit less often. But you're absolutely right to point out that they are one of those teams where I feel like every week I'm going, Oh, you know, I wish they were getting a little more from Ridley. I wish, oh, like Josh <laughs> Allen's coming on and having a good year, but Could it be a little bit more? Could the sack numbers be a little bit better? Blah, 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 blah. And then they just win. They just keep winning games. So the Jags are really good and absolutely belong in the conversation about contenders. Well, the good news is that, you know, when you look at the biggest games of the week, probably the biggest game of the week is the game to see who should actually be number five in the Ringer Power Rankings because we have a showdown, folks. We have the San Francisco 49ers taking on the Jacksonville Jaguars. 49ers are going to, you know, they're minus three in this game, so they are the favored team in this game. So they agree with the Ringer Power Rankings, even though they're going down to Jacksonville. Do we think that's a fair thing, Nora? Whoever wins this game officially is top five in the Ringer Power Rankings. Can we put that on the line? Um, I can't speak for the entire. Oh man, I, f- I forgot about this. Rankings, it, it, it but I can is speak like a for my yeah. own power rankings. Okay. Yes, I think that's fair. Yes, <laughs> okay. you have my word. Too. I like I like your word. So that that is what people have pegged as probably the best game of the week. What do you expect to see in this game? Do you think this could be a statement game for Jacksonville to say to the rest of the NFL and the rest of the media at large, "Hey, we're here and we're a true contender." 
Yeah. So it'll be really interesting. I think for San Francisco, uh, there's still some health stuff in terms of, um, Trent and, and Debo where I'm really curious to see what ends up being decided there. Um, actually haven't checked the latest injury report, so I don't know if anything has developed there, but that's going to shape what I'm expecting for the San Francisco offense a little bit. But in terms of Trevor Lawrence and the Jaguars, you know, I'd like to see them be able to still perform against a defense that I don't think has been quite as smart and timely as they've been in, in previous seasons. I think they do miss D'Amico Ryans in, in some subtle moments in terms of when they choose to blitz and the defensive play calling, but it's still a, a, a top third of the NFL unit, even on a bad day. Right. Mm-hmm. So I want to see how Trevor Lawrence is, is going to look against a defense like that, because I think the path to, through the playoffs for the Jaguars involves Lawrence playing some pretty excellent ball. Um, and then defensively, look, I think there's a lot of, there's a statistical argument that the Jags defense is actually playing better than the 49ers right now. And mm. so if they can put that to the test against this Kyle Shanahan offense and, and have it still look true, that's going to be really meaningful. So yeah, it, you know, number five, number, maybe they sneak in, who knows what happens with the Bengals. Like, Ooh, yeah. Uh, the power ranking slot is on the line and we'll see who, who steps up. Well, you know we're going to be talking about it, so it's always going to be fun. Uh, one more game I wanted to highlight quickly before we take a break. Uh, Browns, Ravens, AFC North, best division in football. Harbaugh said it. Now you got Cleveland, who looked great last week. The defense looks back in form. Um, what do we expect to see in this one? Uh, Lamar Jackson going against this Browns defense should be a, a, an electric game, to say the least. Yeah, so that's the side of the ball that I'm really interested in, because I I do think that the the Browns offense last week and Watson looked better, looked the best that they've looked, but I I'm still I don't think that they have enough offensively um just in terms of his lasting inconsistencies and how much they've struggled to really find their run game after the Nick Chubb injury. I don't think they quite have enough to go up against this this Ravens defense, but the other side of the ball, the Ravens have been putting it together. Right. Mm -hmm. And now we're going to see if they can execute against this Jim Schwartz defense in Cleveland, where, you know, it's not about beating you with schemes. They kind of do what they do. They line up, they play a lot of man, they rush for, but they're just better than a lot of teams. And so I think it's a huge test for the Ravens offensive line, which I think is an, uh, an under considered element of how they've taken some steps forward here, but is going to have a really big test. Miles Garrett. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if they can still look like a unit that's putting it all together, that's figuring out what Todd Munkin wants to do, that's getting used to the new scheme, that's getting you know, more reps together because some of those players are obviously new additions, then I'm already, you know, the Ravens are already my midseason pick to to win it all. Um, they were not my preseason pick, but, you know, they're very, very kind at the ringer and they give us all sorts of do-overs. I like it. I- I'm going to feel more confident than ever about that if, if the offense is able to pass this test. 
And I will say one last thing quickly. They did get bulletin board material because Miles Garrett went on FanDuel TV with Kay Adams and was asked Joe Burrow, Lamar Jackson, which one would he not want to go up against? Basically, he chose Joe Burrow. And uh, Lamar Jackson, I think, is the type of guy. I mean, he's been active on Twitter. He probably saw the clip. And I think uh, that'll be a fun game for Lamar and the Ravens if they can respond to that defensive front for Cleveland. So a little, you know, a little little bit of extra there uh, between two divisional rivals. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk Bill Belichick checking the Patriots. I apologize in advance. And we're also going to talk about (laughs) Will Levis getting mentored by Ryan Tannehill. Welcome back to Through the Ringer. I'm still here with Nora, and I promised before the break we were going to talk about New England and Bill Belichick, and uh, there's been a lot of bold proclamations that have been put out there, Nora. So I'll ask you simply, is this the last year that Bill Belichick will be coaching the New England Patriots? Is that real? Is that going to happen? Okay, no one's going to like see this, right? Because I think it is. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I'm gosh. like so scared. I'm looking around <laughs> waiting to be smited down from on high. Yeah, you got to be I, careful. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what choice they're going to have. I mean... You see scenes like Robert and Jonathan Kraft in the owner's box watching them lose to the Commanders, a team that's, you know, probably getting ready to fire Ron Rivera, whether that's in season or after the season. He looks like he's he's on his way out. The Commanders have been one of these teams where it's been kind of a talking point, right, of, oh, well, if the Patriots were to fire Bill Belichick, I'm sure... Wouldn't a team like Washington, wouldn't a team like the Chargers, they would jump at the opportunity to to hire him in an instant. And I'm not necessarily saying that that's wrong, but here's the coach of the team who supposedly would be lucky to, to have Bill Belichick replace Ron Rivera. And Bill Belichick's losing by like multiple scores to the guy and the crafts are up in the, the box and, you know, Everybody's a professional lip reader on Twitter, but uh, it looked like Jonathan was saying something to Robert about just, we're not good enough. Mm. And when it's not just that they're not good enough to reach the the playoff expectations that, reasonable or not, they went into the season with basically by ownership mandate, they're just not a good team. And it seems like every week, it, it feels like they had to have hit rock bottom and then they find another level. And so I don't necessarily think that Bill Belichick is a terrible coach now. Like, I don't think that, but I I just think that they're kind of out of options and they've reached the end of the, the line there. And that team is in such need of a reset that it, it started to feel you know, at the beginning of the season, it felt like a crazy idea to me. A month in, it felt like if, not when. And now it feels like when and not if. Mm, yeah, and he's probably their most valuable asset, right, on that roster right now. So there is a conversation to be had. Would it be worth, like, uh, you know, floating the idea of trading Bill Belichick to another team? I mean, what if the Las Vegas Raiders and Tom Brady and Mark Davis say, hey, we'd love to trade for Bill Belichick, even though we have 55 million outstanding to coaches. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, the players on that roster would mutiny. 
Like yeah, I, the, going from Josh McDaniels to Bill Belichick, they would there would be an uprising. Right. It's like we we you thought that you had the main guy. You thought you had really really centered to Palpatine, but uh, you know, you really just had Darth Vader and here comes Palpatine yeah. and he's gonna take over. <laughs> and you go from smoking cigars in the locker room. Max Crosby is uh, you know, smoking on TV during interviews after the games, you know what I mean? If you brought Belichick in there, I think like I think you're right. I think it would be a mutiny. People would go crazy. It would be it would be really interesting to see. The thing that I'm fascinated by is is I think, you know, I don't know that this season has taught us a ton about how good of a coach, how good or bad of a coach Bill Belichick is full stop. But I think what it's taught us is that at least right now, he's not a very good coach for a bad team, Mm. which makes it interesting to consider where he might end up and where his, his skills might be best applied. So, you know, I'd love to see him wind up somewhere like the Chargers, mm. where you have the quarterback, you have not a great roster, not a deep roster, but still some some you know blue chip players, and it seems like what they've needed so badly is someone who can just get the little edges here and there and install some. I don't mean discipline in a you know the Chargers don't want it bad enough sense, but discipline in a fundamentally sound football sense. The problem there is, I think, money. I'm not sure the Spanos family wants to pay Bill Belichick, but maybe Mm -hmm. that's where a trade comes in and they figure it out. Who knows? Getting ahead of myself. But the Bill Belichick question is going to be one of, if not the most interesting questions of the offseason, because I really don't think that his 2024, that's next year, what year is it? 2024 is going to be in New England. Yeah, I, uh, it's a fascinating and interesting question. Another fascinating and interesting question and c- scenario, situation, whatever you want to call it, is in Tennessee with the quarterback play. Will Levis, amazing in his first game, throws four touchdowns. His second game, not so amazing. After the game, Mike Vrabel said uh, basically he wasn't good enough, so uh, there's no love lost there. Mike Vrabel was a straight shooter, to say the least. But have you seen enough to think Will Levis is the future at quarterback over Ryan Tannehill? Um, Tannehill famously said he would not mentor Malik Willis. He now says he will mentor or Will Levis. I don't know what changed within a year or two years, but do you believe Will Levis is the future in Tennessee? Well, I think what changed is that Tannehill got so much flack for saying that. <laughs> yeah, I think he learned a lesson, Even though he right? Was just like, it's not my job. I'm the quarterback. That um, he wasn't going to do that over again. Yeah, you know, I think I have because the operative word that you used is future. Is Will Levis a better quarterback than a healthy Ryan Tannehill right now? Probably not. But finding out what he's able to do and letting him start to learn in real live in-game situations is more valuable to the Titans right now than squeezing whatever they've got left out of Ryan Tannehill. So I I do think that I've seen enough. You know, the second game obviously wasn't as good as the first. The first was probably not going to be repeated, at least in in short order, given how a lot of that production and certainly those touchdowns were coming on big shot plays where it's not a high percentage throw. He happened to complete some of them, but he did some advanced stuff. And so if I've seen that, I want to give him as many opportunities to do it again, obviously, but to learn and hone those skills. So I I do Mm. think that we're going to be seeing some more Will Levis uh, for the Titans as the year goes on, and I think that's the right call. 
Yeah, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to do some NFL midseason superlatives, courtesy of Nora. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Through the Ringer. We're here with Nora. And Nora, you just wrote up on the ringer.com the NFL midseason superlatives. And uh, I went through and I started looking up some of the superlatives. You got MVP, you got normal, uh, you know, the awards that you would expect. But then you have my favorite award, which I think uh, we have to talk about first, which is the most random quarterback to start a game this season. And let's start there because <laughs> that, is, that has been the big storyline to me. These, some of these quarterbacks are insane. Clayton Toon wins the award. Congratulations to him. What a year for quarterbacks. I mean, my goodness, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, well, that's what made me what I mean, I, the thing that I wrote in the in the blurb was just like there have been some full on randos playing quarterback right. this year. When I think back on the first half of the season, I think of a lot of things. I think of the the Ravens um, coming on strong. I think of the Bengals having that awful start and then figuring it out. And I also think of like Tommy DeVito. Tommy DeVito. Josh I can't get Tom this guy out of my head. Right? On a Wednesday. Right. Yeah, totally. Right. Um, I keep calling him Danny DeVito by accident. And like not, I, at first I was calling him Danny DeVito as a joke, but now I say Danny DeVito and I mean Tommy DeVito. Um, Jaron Hall. We had a whole moment right. with Tyson Bajan. It it really has been a funny, you know, I think there's a lot that goes into it. Part of it is just injuries, obviously. Part of it is the emergency third quarterback being active, just gets a few more guys into the mix. Um, but had a fair few, who the heck are these guys? I mean, I, you know, I feel like Nathan Peterman is on my Christmas card list relative to how well acquainted we all are with some of these players. And now when you see like a Gardner Minshew or a Tyrod Taylor, you're almost like that. You think of them as like the I'm legit like quarterbacks. I'm experienced veteran. Right. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, NFL <laughs> mainstay Gardner yeah. Minshew. Finally, a, a true NFL QB1, Gardner oh, Minshew. Oh, we've got a yeah. professional in here. What what a time. Tyson Bajant's on Thursday night football last night. I mean, the, this is the this is the world that we live in right now in the NFL. Um, another great superlative. And I, and I started to, to kind of bounce around here, but hottest take. I did not expect this. Samuel L. Jackson drops the hottest take of the season so far on November 5th, 2023 on Twitter, a.k.a. X. He says, at what point do we start the Rams coaching conversation with multiple exclamation points, multiple question marks? What does Samuel L. Jackson know about the Rams coaching staff, Nora? That's a hot so take. So here's really interesting to me. <laughs> he's he's never tweeted about the Rams before. <laughs> Yeah, he's not fired one up, time. It's not like like Snoop Dogg is a big Steelers fan and is constantly mm -hmm. tweeting like fire Matt Canada. Right. <laughs> Samuel L. Fair Jackson enough. has never done this before. And then last week, out of nowhere, he was just like, fire Sean McVay. Right. He's like, I'm over it. I've seen enough. Uh, this is my I've first thought enough. and my only take on the matter. Get rid of Sean McVay. Uh, last one I wanted to hit with you uh, as far as the superlatives, the sneakiest tank job. And you have put the New York Giants. Is this happening right before our very eyes? Are they are they purposefully finding a replacement for Daniel Jones? who They just decided to pay one hundred and forty million dollars. Is this actually happening? Yeah. So if, I guess that's the. Sneakiest might have been an interesting choice of words on my part because it does sort of imply they're doing it on purpose, which I don't mm -hmm. think they are at all. But I do think that the Giants, 
who right now I believe would pick fourth if the season ended today. I think the Giants have the inside track to wind up with the number one overall pick, which, you know, look, I think they made some big mistakes in roster management last offseason. I think they won that game against the Vikings. There is a metric that the NFL uses where they calculate just sort of luck based on do you get the good bounces on opponents dropped passes, opponents dropped interceptions, fumble luck, missed field goals. And the Giants ended up as the team above the Vikings Mm. that benefited from the most randomness um, or benefited the most from events of random chance last season. So then they take a look at the roster and where they are. And I think, you know, the Vikings obviously were embarrassed in that game, but at least they learned the right lessons from it and started to dismantle that roster and think about the future. Whereas the Giants went and handed $140 million to Daniel Jones and messed things up with Saquon. And I think just, thought that they weren't in, or at least acted like they thought that they were in a place where they weren't. So ending up at number one with the opportunity to draft a Caleb Williams, to draft, you know, Drake may, depending on how the rest of the season goes, it's pretty lucky, but I also think it's going to happen because they would have to leapfrog the Cardinals who are about to have Kyler Murray start playing for them at quarterback. So I think they are going to win some more games. And mm-hmm. then the Bears, both in terms of having the Panthers pick and their own pick. Panthers pick, I think the Bear, Panthers are a more competent football team than the Giants right now, not saying a lot. Um, plus, they have no incentive to lose because they don't have their own pick. Right. And then Chicago is probably still a hair more confident, um, competent than the Giants. And they have the same record right now. So, wow. My guy, Tommy DeVito. Um, <laughs> you have one job for the rest yeah, of the season. It's all on you, Tommy DeVito. A lot of pressure. Nora, thanks so much for joining the show, as you always do. Where can we find all your amazing work here at The Ringer? TheRinger.com. Right. The Ringer NFL show feed. I'm on Dual Threat twice a week with Stephen Ruiz and every single album. Go listen, go read, go do all the above for Nora. She's the best. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Nora. We got Howard Beck, The Ringer's very own, coming up right after the break. Welcome back to Through the Ringer. As promised, the Ringer's very own Howard Beck is here. Howard, great to see you, man. Hey, great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, very excited. We got uh, Wimbin Yama in Madison Square Garden last night. You were there in the building. Now, it didn't live up to maybe the hype that many had going into the game for what we'd expect to see from Wimby, but just the just the the overall experience and witnessing him playing in that type of historic venue. What was that like to be there? Yeah, and listen, first time that I've gotten to see him uh, in, in the regular person, season. Right? Last time I saw him was Las Vegas in Summer League, which was a little bit uh, slightly different. Yeah. Uh, the the difficult thing for Victor Wembanyama right now is that you mentioned the hype. And of course, the hype when you're playing at the Garden, you know, it's tenfold. And having to try to live up to that all the time, even if you are as steady and mature beyond your years as Victor Wembanyama seems to be and I think is, Everybody at some point might overthink it, get nerves, whatever. And I think 
was the moment too big for him? Was it just, you know, one of those nights? I don't I don't exactly know how best to assess the fact that it was kind of a bummer of a, of a garden debut for him. Um, but the buzz was unmistakable, palpable, and starting in pregame, right? Uh, just a, a ton of media on the court, watching his every move, filming his every move, photographing his every move, scouts, <laughs> others. Uh, he's a phenomenon, and he doesn't have to put up the numbers to remind us of that. I would even say this, a couple other quick observations. One, massive cheers for him during introductions. And that's one of the great things about the garden. Obviously I'm based here in New York, been here for almost 20 years and Knicks fans appreciate greatness, no matter who they're playing for. So he got a really warm reception and you could also feel that, that, that little uh, electricity that goes through the arena every time he touched the ball, especially early on, because people are anticipating something great every time he touches it, which is a really uh, a rare thing. There aren't that many guys in the league who trigger kind of this just gut level response and a, and a palpable crowd response just by touching the ball. And he didn't deliver and he missed his first couple of threes and it wasn't the greatest night for him. But you could just tell there's a certain energy that is going to always surround him no matter where he is. He will have, I guarantee, not only better nights this season, but better nights at the Garden uh, the next time he comes through, unfortunately for uh, New York fans, it won't be until next season. Yeah, and he spoiled us, right? I mean, he plays in that game against Phoenix, against Kevin Durant, has 38 points and kind of shows us yeah. the full arsenal. And everyone freaks out at that point. But it does feel like teams have tried to use physicality against him. They try to you know, wear him down a little bit. He doesn't have a point guard, as Bill Simmons has been yelling uh, from the rooftops, that he does need a traditional yes. point guard. So there are some caveats that are in there. But one thing I wanted to ask you, and I know it's a, it's a dumb thing, but in the consciousness of American basketball fans, you hear about Madison Square Garden and you say big time players show up in a big time venue they have big time games there was it a bit of a you know like do you think anyone comes away from that game like the new york basketball brain and they're saying uh he didn't pass the msg test as dumb as that may be (laughs) i don't know i'd like to think that we are beyond that kind of uh (laughs) neanderthal take (laughs) yeah we're i mean listen we're we're probably not we we are all still neanderthals especially uh amongst sports fandom I, but i don't think so right I, I wasn't hearing a lot of that in the wake of it and i think it's it's clear especially at this stage of the season it's very early he's just a couple weeks into his his uh, nba career you're going to have the high highs of what he did against the suns and if it's a low low that's you know not the worst of low lows uh his performance against the knicks i think what else enc- uh, encourages me though along the way here is whether I've seen him um, playing at his best or the nights that he struggled when I, in the games that I've watched on TV, the thing that's consistent about him is he's a guy who doesn't look like he's trying to force anything. He's not like, mm-hmm. I've got to take over. I've got to live up to my billing. I've got to show why I'm the number one overall pick or why I'm considered a generational talent, which is way too much for a 19-year-old to try right. to live up to. And I, I, the thing that I appreciate right now and I really um, I think is a great sign is that He's just playing within the Spurs offense. And as you note, and as uh, our friend Bill Simmons is noting constantly, that offense is weighed down by the lack of a true point guard. And so if he had even just a a replacement level point guard out there, um, his opportunities would be that much better. Um, He'd he'd get more more chances, period. He wouldn't have to try to create on his own. He wouldn't get lost. There are times it feels like, oh, I I don't think he's touched the ball in quite a while. Mm-hmm. If you've got a more veteran offense and a steady upper tier point guard or even a mid tier point guard, 
he's going to have more consistent opportunities and produce more consistently. So I'm not worried at all. I, I am certain based on what I heard last night, the Spurs are not worried at all at this stage. Well, the New York Knicks have been playing spoiler because uh, they beat women. Yama on a Wednesday night at home. They have a really solid game. Brunson looks good. Randall looks good. Tom Thibodeau is happy on the sideline, but they also played the new look Clippers with James Harden. And that leads to a conversation about James Harden. You wrote a great piece on the ringer.com headline. James Harden can't win his legacy back. And you talk about um, kind of where he's, stands right now in the conversations the zeitgeist of basketball fans can we just talk about the conundrum of James Harden and obviously he loses his first game his debut with the Clippers against the New York Knicks yeah uh quick side note uh Tom Thibodeau's never happy so if you perceive him to be happy after those two (laughs) wins that's that's you're projecting right Thibodeau's never actually happy no he actually smiled last night at one point talking about Wembenyama pregame so it's it's, it's like a five times a season thing where you see uh, Tibbs smile um right Harden is a conundrum. Harden is a conundrum because, as I wrote about, he is, by absolute every definition, one of the all-time greats. An incredible scorer. A guy who, I, I, won't, I don't want to say James Harden changed the game, but he is among the generation that helped change the game over the last 10-plus uh, years in this era. But he's always been this kind of maddening figure. Uh, if you're a diehard Houston Rockets fan, you don't care about any of this. You don't care about the aesthetics. You just care about the fact that he got you a ton of wins, a lot of playoff appearances, um, and at least one run that you thought without injuries might have gotten you to a finals and even a championship. It's not his talent that's ever been in question, but the aesthetics of Harden's game are really tough for anybody but James Harden fans. Uh, the way he foul draws, the way he, he he baits and hunts, and even just the ball dominance, right? Like he is among the ways in which he's changed the game, I, I would say for the worse is that he is one of the pioneers of this super high usage or heliocentric, as my friend Seth Partnow calls it, play where you just, you control every possession. Absolutely. You're either shooting or passing for an assist. Russell Westbrook's like that. And then Luca and Giannis even are part of that, that trend now over the last uh, 10 years where guys are just, if this is your best player, get him the ball every time and let him create or shoot. And I'm not a big fan of that particular style of ball i like player and ball movement i like what the warriors do i like what the spurs have done at their best i like what you know the the 90s bulls did back in the day and, and phil jackson teams did with the with the triangle i prefer that so part of this yeah it's a personal aesthetics thing but the other thing is that james harden had already i i think had a burden to bear because of his style of play before he created all the havoc of the last three years and now he's created a ton of havoc forcing his way out of houston forcing his way out of brooklyn Forcing his way out of Philly. There's no precedent <laughs> among the all-time greats for this kind of discontent leading to pushing your way out of multiple places. And it's not as though he's pushing his way out of places where he had no hope to win. I would argue, Tate, that he actually worsened his title hopes by making this move. He was with the actual reigning MVP, Joel Embiid, and pushed mm-hmm. his way away from the MVP to go play with Two really great players, one of whom's a two-time finals MVP, but who cannot stay healthy. And to go reunite with Russell Westbrook, who he didn't exactly mesh with perfectly the last time they played together in Houston. So it's just a very, very messy resume. And as I wrote, legacy isn't about what you do. It's a lot about what you do. That, that gets you to a certain point where we have to talk about you and your legacy. But we, the public, decide legacy because it's how we think about you. It's how we remember mm. you. And I would say that even if the Clippers were to win the championship in June, 
and and I think that's still, you know, it's in play. But I'm not. They're not, you know, they're certainly not favorites. If they but somehow pulled that off, are we going to remember James Harden and the year that he led the Clippers to the championship? Is that the top line of <laughs> of his bio, or is it James Harden who scored a lot of points and soured on a lot of teams and kept ditching All Star teammates? I mean, I I think that stuff is still going to way more heavily in the public consciousness. Yeah, you compared him to a to the very hungry cali- caterpillar, and you basically said that you know he's chewed through his teammates, you know the coaches, and he's basically gotten his way three straight times, and it's three strikes and you're out. And at this point, um, he's with Los Angeles. He seems to be happy, but if you watch the first two or three Clippers games, as I did, I, I went to the first two at home. Um, they were a team that felt like they were already built for a championship run. I liked how the economy of shots on that team was actually you know kind of made up, and I liked Russell Westbrook being in the starting unit and being the leader of this team and being a vocal leader it seems like James Harden if anything he could have messed up what they had going well with Los Angeles even though he is this supreme talent so there is just a, a lot of conversations about James Harden that that will be coming up throughout the season and like you said um, legacy and accolades those are two different things and I think that is a, a very um, astute point when you talk about James Harden and the situation right now with the LA Clippers we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to talk about um, Giannis Antetokounmpo technical fouls and a few more big picture topics in the NBA. Welcome back to Through the Ringer. We're still here with Howard Beck, and let's talk about Giannis Antetokounmpo because Giannis is a, a fascinating figure, you know, in the world of basketball and beyond. And uh, last night there was a whole lot of conversations because he got ejected from a game for doing the very popular too small celebration. There was a lot of uproar about this decision, Howard. What were your thoughts just seeing the highlight of that moment in time and just the, the idea of being thrown out of a game for, uh, I guess, taunting would be the right word. It was it was a taunting tech, and I think there's a couple of important distinctions or just uh, pieces of this that, that fans need to keep in mind. One is that he wasn't tossed for that taunting tech. He was tossed because it was his second tech, and that's an automatic ejection. Right. Um, the second thing is two things happened after that play. Before he did the too small gesture, he did a, the briefest, briefest of stare downs of Isaiah Stewart. And I mm-hmm. think that was the thing that actually is, as I rewatched it, if you listen to for where the whistle was, and it, you know, it's hard to tell, I'm assuming a little bit, and I, I was also reading the pool report with the referees. I think he was hit at least as much for the stare down right before the too small uh, gesture. So listen, the league, obviously long history in this league of trying to tamp down uh, tensions, potential tempers. You don't want taunting because taunting leads to hurt feelings, which leads to retribution, which leads to fights and things. And, you know, they don't want to go back to the 90s. Um, Those are the rules. And the referees in this age, they are scrutinized to the nth degree. And if you decide, you know what, I don't want to give Giannis his second tech. This isn't the kind of thing that I want to have to toss him out of the game for at this stage of the game. This was a pretty minor infraction. But you're graded every day. And if the report comes back the next day that, um, hey, guys, you let this go by, that should have been a tech. Yeah, but I didn't want to toss him. Tough. This is the rules. Referee the rule. Don't referee the situation. And we are in an era where more, more often than not, and, and as a general rule, the league would like its referees to referee 
the, the, the letter of the law, not the situation. And I think we would all like as, as fans and media who cover the game, I think you would rather have the, uh, the referees have a little bit more latitude. Um, or, you know, maybe there needs to be some wrinkle there where certain kinds of techs are just the free throw or something else. Mm-hmm. And maybe you don't have to give the second tech. Um, because yeah, nobody anywhere, what, including probably the referees themselves and including the Detroit Pistons at that stage want to see Giannis ejected for something so minor in the grand scheme of things. Um, the rules are the rules, I guess. Yeah, the rules are the rules. And I can only imagine what Rasheed Wallace in today's uh, day and age in the NBA would actually. I mean, he he would have uh, I know he has the most technical fouls ever, but he did have probably double at this point. Um, I want to talk about Damon Giannis because there's been a lot of conversations about the defensive end with these two guys are average, you know, giving up about 120 points per game. That's up there with the Washington Wizards. So not great, even though shout out to the Wizards. They beat my Hornets last night. So uh, congratulations to them. They got a nice win. But uh, in general, Damon Giannis, does it work? Do you think they need to get another another guard in there to help with the defense or, or do you think eventually this will gel together and they'll be all right? I, I think it's bigger than that. So uh, the Bucks, as you and I speak are 25th in defensive efficiency. That's down from fourth last season. So it's a pretty big drop. Right. And in the years before that, they were 14th before that ninth and they were first overall in defensive efficiency in 2019, 20. Um, so they've generally been like a top 10 uh, defense at worst 14th in, in these last several seasons. So that's a pretty big drop off. Is that, just about swapping out Drew Holiday for Dame. I don't think it's just that, right? Like, that is a big deal. Drew Holiday is one of the best defenders in the league, period. Dame is not. Um, <laughs> they are having some issues uh, containing the ball. They're, they've got their, their transition defense hasn't been great. But part of this, too, is like they have a rookie head coach, Adrian Griffin, who was experimenting with new defensive schemes and did not have Brooke Lopez in that deeper drop that they have thrived with. He he himself, to his credit, uh, Adrian Griffin said, players came to him, his veterans came to him and said, um, listen, we function better defensively with the deeper drop. They switched to that. They've won their last couple of games. Uh, that doesn't mean everything is fixed. We shouldn't assume too much. But they have shown some return to normalcy or closer to it. Um, and, you know, it's just it's early in the season. They, you know, rookie head coach, uh, new star in, in Dame Lillard, don't have Drew Holiday. Bench is thinner. Um, they've got some age issues. Chris Middleton's still kind of in and out, minutes restrictions, all these things. And Middleton's a really important part of their their perimeter D, especially with Drew Holiday gone. So there's too many things going on, too many variables to chalk it up to just Damon Giannis figuring it out. So I, I think well, let's give the Bucks at least another, like, I don't know, five minutes or something before we uh, you know, decide their season's a wreck. Yeah, and I do think Lopez and Giannis, when it comes down to it, once we get to the playoffs, that rim protection with those two guys is pretty immaculate. It's top in the league when they when they have it figured out, especially with that drop coverage that you're talking about. And I think Bochamp is a very underrated piece of this team. I think he's going to be a defensive piece that they end up using and uh, have to use in the playoffs. So I'm not panicking about the Bucks, but there is a conversation about who's the best in the East. We saw the Sixers and the Celtics go head-to-head. The Sixers win that game. Nick Nurse is getting rave reviews. Coach of the year conversation already starting for him. What do you like about the Sixers this year as opposed to what we saw in the previous iterations under Doc and with James Harden? And uh, do you think the Sixers are actually the class of the East right now when we talk about who could actually make a run to the NBA championship? It's funny because just a week ago and certainly um, in the preseason, I think most of us, and for months, frankly, have thought of this as a two-way race, right? Milwaukee mm-hmm. and Boston. And that's it's kind of been the conversation for a while. And for good reason. 
And Philly was hard to take uh, seriously, partially because the hardened cloud was hanging over them. The trade demand was hanging over them. We weren't sure what the resolution would be and who it would bring back. You know, was it, were they going to get another star? Were they going to get enough assets to parlay into another star? How long would it take to get that guy? Oh, guess what? They have another star. His name is Tyrese Maxey. Right. He, he was already there. And I think a large part of, of what's gone right for them early in the season is Maxey has not just continued the steady rise that we saw over the last couple of seasons, but has embraced and thrived in that co-star role with Joel Embiid. You never know with a young player, right? When you've got an opportunity to just kind of like show your stuff in moments, in spurts, it's one thing. But when the team comes to you and says, implicitly or explicitly, you're the guy now. Harden's gone. He's holding out. We're going to trade him. We have traded him. It's, It's your show now. And especially as a young guard in this league, like he has been just beyond spectacular, confident, assertive, makes the right decisions more often than not with the ball in his hands. And on top of that, Nick Nurse has, I think, uh, instilled a lot more movement in this uh, in this offense. And that's a hard thing to do. Look, that's not a knock on Doc. No one can instill more movement in their offense when James Harden has the ball in his hands. Like Mike D'Antoni was the uh, king of. The ball finds energy, movement, player movement, ball movement. Don't let the ball stick. Mike D'Antoni goes to coach James Harden. What does he do? Let's let's Harden do his thing because that was the way <laughs> to win there. And that's what the Rockets right. were about. It's hard to do it with Harden there. So I think, weirdly, the Sixers are actually better off now without Harden because Maxi has filled a lot of the vacuum. Other guys are more involved. Kelly Oubre has been uh, phenomenal for them. We'll see how uh, you know if he can sustain that throughout the season. Um, and they still have the assets that they got in return uh, for Harden to parlay into whomever it may be. Yeah, I like Maxi uh, right now, and I also like Tobias Harris giving you like 19 points per game. He's been a good third option for this team. And if you look at the MVP tracker on Basketball Reference right now, Joel Embiid is number two, and Tyrese Maxey is number three. Not to say that that is uh, what it actually is in reality, I think but Tobias like those two is in there too, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. I think so he like is. the the, the the 76ers are, are up there, which leads lends me to my, my next question, Howard. Who right now, 10-ish games into the season, would you circle and say is your MVP? And why is it Nikola Jokic? Because he's been incredible so far. Yeah, by the way, on the on the on uh, those probabilities of, on basketball reference, Tobias Harris is, in fact, 10th. Uh, three Sixers in the top 10. Um, that's, a, that's amazing. It, it, it's it's wild. Uh, look, it's it, it's looking up to shaping up to be a great race uh, again. Um, and with the same two guys at the top of it again. If you look at the probabilities on Basketball Reference, it's it's Jokic by a mile over Embiid. Um, Luca's is in there. Tatum is in there. Steph Curry is in right. there. Shea Gilgis Alexander is in there. I would lean uh, Jokic at this point um, for all the obvious reasons. He's been as dominant as ever, and the Nuggets have a fantastic record, right? I always say the record matters a lot to me in the MVP race. If if you're, you know, like Luka Doncic the last couple of years, great stats, bad team record. Sorry. MVP in this mm-hmm. league, generally speaking, 99% of the time comes from a serious contender. Uh, I know Dallas is there right now. I'm not sold on Dallas. So I'm, I'm going to push them off to the side for the moment. So I think it's Jokic, uh, Embiid, Curry, are, are probably the next couple. Uh, Tatum is in the mix there somewhere. And of course, it will change a thousand times between now and April. 
Yeah, you got a lot of people trying to throw Cam Thomas's name out there because he's been playing such great <laughs> basketball. But uh, he, he's sidelined for the next couple of weeks with an ankle injury. Uh, Howard, thanks so much for covering the show. Where can we find all your amazing work right now on The Ringer? Uh, you can find all my work at TheRinger.com. You can also catch me Love every it. Monday on The Real Ones podcast with Logan Murdoch and Raja Bell. Uh, appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show, Howard. We appreciate you. Appreciate everyone watching through The Ringer. And we will see you on Tuesday with Cousin Sal. <laughs>